people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, coming up this week, a molecular sieve for CO2. Scientists have found a substance that can grab the CO2, which is in exhaust streams, and that should help it not go into the atmosphere in future. Important, with Copenhagen around the corner. Also, a new therapy for cystic fibrosis, how a drug can boost the action of a damaged gene that normally causes the disease. And are mobile phones actually off the hook when it comes to causing cancer? There's a new study out that sheds some light on the risks, and I'll tell you what it is in just a moment. Cat. Thanks, Chris. Also under the microscope this week is the virus hepatitis C, which is spread by blood-to-blood contact, and it causes liver cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. The numbers of people with the disease around the world are increasing, but at the moment there's no cure and there's no vaccine. We'll be hearing how scientists are trying to tackle the problem of hep C and what modern medicine can do to help people who are already infected with it, and also how we can protect people that aren't. Chris. Thank you very much, Kat. Uh, also on the way, we'll be looking at the answer to this very pithy question. How do farmers plant seedless fruit crops? Hmm. So how do seedless varieties of fruit and other vegetables actually get propagated in the first place? We'll be finding out shortly. So in the meantime, if you have a question for The Naked Scientist, you can get in touch. Our email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And if you're in a tweeterish mood, you can Twitter at us. It's at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, with Copenhagen coming up, when world leaders will get together to discuss whether or not there is a global warming problem and what we might be able to do to stop it, uh, any way in which we can mitigate or reduce the amount of CO2 which is going out into the atmosphere is a very good thing. One of the problems with scavenging or collecting CO2, which is in exhaust streams, and you bear in mind that a big power station, for example, will pump out thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide just in one afternoon. One problem is how do you get that CO2 from the exhaust of that power station and lock it away somewhere? Well, there are chemicals that can do that. They're they're scrubber chemicals, and one of them uh, that's been investigated is a, a family of amine molecules. They're very nasty, though. They're corrosive, they're highly toxic, and once they've soaked up some CO2 trying to get the CO2 back out of them so that you can then reuse the amine and catch some more CO2 uses enormous amounts of energy and that makes the process very energy inefficient. So, what can we do about it? Well, there's a group of researchers who are actually working on a family of chemicals called MOFs, not things that flutter around with wings, MOFs, metal organic frameworks. These are molecular cages and what they consist of are metal atoms at the corners of the molecule and in between those metal atoms are inorganic or organic linker molecules. In fact, this MOF that this guy, David Britt, at the California Nanosystems Institute has made is one called MGMOF74 and it's got magnesium atoms linked together by a chemical called DOT, which is short for 2,5-dioxidoterophthalate. You don't really need to know the details of that, but the important thing is this molecule is amazingly good at locking onto CO2. 
So if you put it in the path of a stream of gases, of which there is some CO2 and a mixture of other gases, what happens is the CO2 gets sieved out inside this big molecular cage and it can soak up something like 9% of its own weight in CO2. That's not quite as high as the amine chemicals, which can lock away something like... 10% or 14% of their own weight in CO2, but the real breakthrough is that you can easily get the CO2 back out of this stuff. You just warm it up. You make it about 80 or 90 degrees, all the CO2 comes back out, you can then sequester it somewhere safely, and you regenerate this stuff, and you can keep using it again and again and again. And so they're saying that this will be a very good molecule to incorporate into things like flue gas streams, because then you could scavenge back all the CO2 that energy plants are putting out. Cap. That sounds like a really good idea. Now, uh, helping us to breathe easily um, is in a slightly different way. Researchers in California have discovered a way to partially repair damaged lung cells from people with cystic fibrosis. This is an inherited disease that affects more than 70,000 people around the world and it causes severe problems with uh, the lungs and digestion and those kind of organs. Now, these results are published in the journal Nature Chemical Biology this week and they're from a team led by Professor William Balk at the Scripps Research Institute. What have they done? Well, it all centres on protein processing. So when proteins are made in our cells, they're folded up into the correct shape. But if there's a fault in the protein or in this folding process, then the protein doesn't work properly and the cell goes, oh, this doesn't work and breaks it down again. Now, in cystic fibrosis, the disease is caused by faults in a gene that makes a protein called CFTR. This normally sits on the surface of cells and it shuttles salts, uh, sodium and chloride, across the cell membrane. Now, around 9 out of 10 people with the disease have a faulty version of CFTR known as DF. 508 CFTR and this protein is the wrong shape and basically the cell uh, breaks it down again once it's made it. Uh, it gets broken down because it doesn't work properly. But the researchers figured out that if they could stop this faulty version being broken down, then it might work a bit, and surely that would help to relieve some of the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. And that's just what they've managed to do. How? Well, they used a drug called, OK, I hate this bit, anilide, anilide hydroxamic acid. It's or easy for them to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, S-A-H-A for short, I'll stick with that, which blocks enzymes called histone deacetylases. Now, uh, you may have heard me talking about these before because I love all these kind of proteins. These proteins normally work to affect uh, the kind of packaging around DNA in the nucleus of the cell and they switch genes on and off. But recently it's been found that they're also involved in processing proteins so the researchers tested this drug on lung cells that were taken from cystic fibrosis patients with this particular DF508 fault, and they found that the drug, SAHA, restores the level of the CFTR activity by up to about 28% of that compared with normal lung cells. So it's not 100%, but then I suppose people who carry cystic fibrosis genes, their carrier, they only have 50% activity anyway, so it's not actually far off the 50%. Well, exactly. It could be enough to make a real difference. So, for example, patients with less severe cystic fibrosis, they have around sort of 15 to 30% levels of their CFTR activity. They have, you know, near enough a normal lifestyle. They do have some problems. But the uh, researchers were looking at really severe faults, you know, when both copies of the chromosome are broken. Um, so actually being able to restore up to 28% of lung cell function could be really significant. And also importantly, they found that the drug works best at quite low doses. And that's important if you're going to take a drug like this forward to clinical trials um, because it has also been tested in clinical trials for cancer being given in large doses over a short time. But for cystic fibrosis, you'd want to give it in low doses over a long period of time. Um, so these results are quite promising. And the researchers also think that it might work in other diseases where faulty proteins are involved. So things like type 2 diabetes, maybe arthritis, osteoporosis or even Alzheimer's disease. Incredible, especially given how common cystic fibrosis is um, with the number of people who actually carry that gene. You see very many cases of it. So that's very, very promising, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, also this week, there's a very interesting paper published, and this, this cat has got to be an example of nominative determinism. It's about mobile phones and whether or not they can give you brain cancer. But the lady who's done the work is actually called Isabel, which I think is really quite touching, is Isabel Del Tour. Uh, she's actually from the Ga Danish Cancer Society, and she has a paper in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute this week. And what they've done is to say, let's have a look over a very long period of time at the rates of various cranial cancers and neoplasms, tumours. So they were looking at 
gliomas, malignant brain tumours, and also meningiomas, non-malignant brain tumours. And what they did was to just sum up how many people had these things over a 20 or 30-year period. So they collected every single case they could find between 1973 and 2003. Their thinking was that this period completely spans or sort of overlaps the time when mobile phones were first introduced to the population, so it was both before and after. And what they were looking to see if, is if there was any change in the frequency of, of cranial tumours during that time in response to the introduction of mobile phones. And this was on populations in Scandinavia. And what they found was there was absolutely no difference whatsoever in the rate at which tumours were cropping up in the population before and after the introduction of mobile phones in the mid-90s. And the point they make is that there could be three reasons for this. One is that it could be that the effect of mobile phones could be just so small that their study is too small to detect that difference. Another is that this study offers insight on a lead time of five to ten years. In other words, they've been looking at five to ten years of exposure. That could be too soon to see an effect. The third possibility is that there just isn't an effect and mobile phones are safe. So in the meantime, we can't say that it's absolutely no evidence that mobile phones are linked to any cancer, but looking at very large numbers of people over a five to ten year period has failed so far to show any difference. Kat. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, if you look, uh, even in the UK, you just look at the statistics of the number of people with brain tumours, they are in fact going down, I think, very slightly, rather than going up. So uh, there are studies that are underway, much bigger studies, looking prospectively at mobile phone use. So we'll have to wait for sort of 20 years to see the results of those. But yeah, there's not a lot of solid scientific evidence about that. But from uh, mobile phones to fruit flies, um, and uh, I don't know, Chris, are you an aggressive person? Would you say you're an aggressive man? Maybe, under certain circumstances. It depends if someone <laughs> steals my breakfast, like my daughter did this morning. Would you have a fight in a pub or something like that? Actually, I've never because... done that, but I know someone who has. <laughs> it's not not Ben, is it? Anyway, researchers from Caltech, the uh, California Institute of Technology, have made a step forward in understanding how aggression may be hardwired into the genes, well, at least for fruit flies. Uh, now, this is research from Professor David Anderson and his colleagues writing in the journal Nature this week, and they found a chemical pheromone that can controls aggression in flies and they've also pinpointed the nerve cells in their antennae that detect these pheromones and send signals to the brain telling them flies to you know start kicking it all off. I'm a bit worried about this because you you asked me if I was an aggressive person are you talking about flies and pheromones I'm not a fly um don't we already know about fly pheromones though? Well, we do know a bit about insect pheromones. We've known for a while that insects can respond aggressively to certain chemicals when they're presented with artificial versions of them. But we don't know how much they use these pheromones normally to control their aggression. And to prove it, the scientists had to track down the exact receptors in the insect nerve cells that receive these chemical signals, something that at the moment can only be done using fruit flies, as scientists know quite a lot about their nervous system. Now, the scientists discovered that a chemical called... Oh, what do I get all the names this week? 11 cis vaccinal acetate, or CVA for short, can make pairs of male flies get aggressive and they rear up on their hind legs and start bashing each other with their forelegs. And when they put pairs of male flies near a little mesh cage containing other males that were producing this chemical, they became aggressive. So, uh, But when researchers silenced the nerve cells that respond to this chemical, the flies no longer showed the aggressive behaviour. So if you put loads of male flies together in one place, that promotes aggression and is that because they're making lots of this chemical then? Yes, and this was something that the researchers could actually test. Now, male fruit flies, they like to gather on food because it gives them opportunities to mate with passing female flies and also to feed. Now, normally they all kind of rub along okay, but if there's too many male flies, then obviously there, there might be a sort of too many to mate effectively or to feed effectively. So the researchers took male flies that had been genetically manipulated to have hypersensitive nerve cells that detect the CVA chemical. And they found that when these flies gathered on food, there was basically a massive fight uh, and they all fought each other until there was just one successful fly left but when they tested unmodified flies they all just kind of you know just got on with it and sat there together oh to be that fly so what does that actually tell us about this aggressive behavior then well, the researchers think that when the population of male flies gets too high, then the levels of this chemical rise because obviously there's lots of flies producing this hormone, uh, this pheromone. So this makes the flies aggressive. They start fighting and they drive away some of the male flies. And as they fly off, obviously the concentration of the chemical will drop and the flies will calm down, calm down, and the cycle kind of keeps repeating. Now, at the moment, they've done this just in the lab, but they think it should be possible to find out if this is happening in the wild. And of course, 
course, it would be interesting to see if these kind of chemicals might be at work in, uh, in humans. Maybe we should go down some nightclubs where there's a lot of men and, uh, and do some measuring. Perish the thought of a giant human flypaper. Thank you, Kat. Now, also in the news this week, actually in the paper, in the journal Science, sorry, there's a paper which highlights a potential new treatment for a virus we're going to be talking about at more length this week, and that's hepatitis C. Now, this new paper describes a molecule which will target hepatitis C by attacking a microRNA, a short piece of genetic material which liver cells make and which seems to be absolutely critical for the virus to be able to replicate or grow. And that stops when this microRNA is neutralised, the virus in its tracks. And one of the people who's helped to make this possible is Dr. Henrik Urom, who's from Santaris Pharma. And he's with us now. Hello, Henrik. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Uh, so please Thank tell you. us, first of all, um, what is the problem with hepatitis C actually treating it at the moment with existing therapy? Well, at this time, there's probably about uh, a couple of hundred millions of uh, hepatitis C sufferers worldwide, uh, and the standard of care is uh, a combination of uh, uh, interferon and rebavirin, which is effective in only about 50% uh, and associated with significant uh, adverse effects. So what you're saying is that we can't do much about hepatitis C at this stage, so we, we have a strong need for better therapies. There's absolutely a very strong need for new therapies. And what have you done? So what we've done is we've taken a non-traditional approach. Uh, rather than uh, trying to attack the virus directly, we're attacking it indirectly by sequestering a host factor that the virus uses uh, for its replication. Um, and what it turns out is that when we do that, we get a drug that uh, is very potent in the chimpanzee model, which is uh, the only uh, other species than humans that can contrive HCV. So it packs a combination of uh, very good potency uh, and good safety, uh, and then a unique uh, barrier uh, to uh, resistance. So first of all, tell us, what is the new drug and how does it work? It works by uh, binding to and uh, sequestering a uh, endogenous uh, microRNA called microRNA-122 that is uh, specifically expressed in the liver and which the virus uses uh, for its uh, replicative cycle. Uh, and sequestering this basically removes it from the virus and hence stops the virus replicating. Why should the virus rely on a human cellular factor, this microRNA, to grow at all? Why does it need that? Well, viruses uh, depends on a lot of uh, host factors. They do not uh, encode all of the functions they need to complete their life cycle. So when they enter cells, they do co-opt a lot of uh, different host factors uh, to uh, complete that. And your new agent, how does it work? What does it do to that microRNA in the liver cells to make it so that the cells will no longer allow the hepatitis C to grow there? Well, the microRNA in the uh, HCV-infected liver cell uh, basically binds to two sites in the 5' end of the HCV genome. Uh, and all the, although the mechanism by which this binding uh, facilitates replication is not entirely known in details at this point, it is known to be a direct binding event between the microRNA and the HCV genome. So in some way that microRNA encourages the virus, it, it enables the virus to copy its genetic material? So what our drug does is it uh, binds competitively to the microRNA and sequesters it uh, in a form that it can no longer bind to the HCV genome. Where else in the body would your cells make microRNA-122, this particular linchpin? And, and does your drug therefore have the potential to inactivate a key component of cells in other bits of the body and therefore cause side effects? Uh, all present data suggests that microRNA-122 is a liver-specific uh, microRNA. Uh, and it's uh, in the normal uh, function involved in the uh, uh, biosynthesis and metabolism of uh, lipid and cholesterol. Uh, so uh, what we observe uh, as the only other effect so far in extensive toxin pharmacology studies uh, when we inhibit the microRNA-122 is the expected uh, reduction in the plasma levels of cholesterol. And so when you inhibit this particular microRNA in the liver with your drug, what happens to the hepatitis C-infected chimpanzees you were trying it on? So we, uh, in, uh, we injected them once weekly for 12 weeks, and during the whole dosage periods, we saw a steady decrease of uh, virus uh, titers, both in plasma in, in, and in, uh, in the liver. 
uh, and at the end of dosing, uh, this effect uh, lasted a couple of months uh, post-dosing, uh, consistent with the fairly long half-life of the drug. So over a period of five months where we kept the uh, microRNA uh, fully suppressed in these gyms, uh, there was a steady decline and a, a very strong response uh, on the virus that did not bounce back at any point in time. I think that's this combination of a good response on the virus and a safe treatment, but combined with uh, the apparent complete absence of a viral breakthrough through this extended period of time. That's the combination that really creates excitement in the community. And the next step, just briefly, is presumably now to try this in humans. Yes, we've so far conducted the first uh, study in, in healthy volunteers. It's a single-dose study, single-ascending-dose study. We're currently uh, conducting a multiple-ascending-dose study to uh, define the dose and the dosing schedules when we hopefully move to patients uh, uh, in the near future. We haven't quite... Uh, uh, worked out the design and the, uh, where those studies are going to be uh, conducted and, and when, but uh, we will set up a patient's information center on our homepage uh, where patients interested in this new drug uh, candidate uh, can get the relevant information. And you can get more relevant information in the Journal of Science this week. And the drug that uh, Henrik was talking about is SPC3649. That was Dr. Henrik Urom, who is from Santaris Pharma. They published a new molecule this week that they hope will help to uh, get rid of hepatitis C, or at least reduce the levels of hepatitis C in the liver. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And this week we're looking at the world of hepatitis C, which is a leading cause of liver failure around the world. It affects something like 170 million people. And uh, coming up, we'll be finding out how the virus gets itself inside our cells, how it actually makes you get ill and develop disease once you've got it. And uh, if you'd like to ask us any questions, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can send us a tweet on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. Now, with us this week is uh, Dr. Joe Grove, who is a hepatitis researcher. He's from Birmingham University, and he works on the way that hepatitis C viruses actually get into our cells and then escape from the immune system. Because remember, one of the things about hepatitis C is once you've got it, in the majority of cases, you don't actually get rid of it again. It stays with you, which means it must be able to get away from the immune system. Joe, hello. Hi, how are you? Very well. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us a little bit, first of all, about what actually is hepatitis C. Okay, um, it's quite a common misconception that um, hepatitis C is some way related to the other hepatitis viruses. So I think it's good to start and establish that it isn't. Um, the word hepatitis is, um, is derived from the Latin for liver. So the hepatitis viruses share one thing in common, they infect the liver. However, in the same way that you could describe uh, a crab and a dolphin and a jellyfish as ocean creatures, um, the, these viruses are completely different and that they just share a habitat. Um, hepatitis C in particular is actually, if you look at its closer relatives, um, closer relative viruses, they are viruses that, um, such as dengue virus, which in, um, transmits between humans via mosquitoes, and there's also pestiviruses, which are related, that infect cattle. But hepatitis C seems to be quite uh, like the black sheep of the family within this group, and it's, it's uh, quite unusual, and it's, uh, it can only be found in humans, um, although, as uh, Henrik alluded to earlier, you can get an infection of uh, chimpanzees as well. How does it spread in the majority of cases? So it's a, a blood-borne virus, and um, we, we've only been at, we only first isolated uh, the virus in the last twenty years, and that's allowed research to to start. Um, before that, we we didn't know what caused this form of hepatitis, and it was. It was actually transmitting, um, certainly in the, in the Western world, predominantly through blood transfusions, uh, much the same way that HIV was in, in the, the 60s and 70s. Um, however, since we've discovered what the virus is, we can test blood, so there's no danger from blood products, um, certainly in the Western world. And now the predominant um, route of transmission um, in the Western world is via... Um, intravenous drug users sharing needles. However, in the in the um, developing world, there is a problem with um, 
poor medical practices and, and poor sterilization of um, medical implements leading to transmission. So, for instance, in parts of Egypt, you have a very high level of infection because of a, a vaccination campaign where the needles weren't sterilized properly. As a result, um, 40% of the population contracted hepatitis C. Yes, I think that the current numbers are one person in 10, if you just pick a person at random, has actually got it, haven't they? Um, does the virus then just home in on the liver, or does it affect other tissues too? Well, um, there is some evidence to suggest that, that the virus may um, have reservoirs throughout the rest of the body, but the predominant site of replication is within hepatocytes. These are the cells that function within the liver. So once the virus has entered the bloodstream, it will circulate in the blood, but then it um, interacts with uh, specific receptors on, that are expressed on hepatocytes and enters um, liver cells, and, in which, and this is the, the place where it replicates. As a virus, um, viruses are the, the, one of the most simple form of life, and they are completely dependent on their host. So the entry of a virus into the, 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 its host cell is a prerequisite for its replication. So in other words, it gets into the liver cell, hijacks it, turns it into a hepatitis C factory, and then that hepatitis C infected cell just makes more copies of hepatitis C, which then goes around the bloodstream, infects other liver cells, but can also, if someone sticks a needle in there and then shares that needle, infect another person. But the key thing is there are many different types of hepatitis virus, but they don't cause an infection for life, but hepatitis C does. So why is that? Um, it's particularly, it, you're right, it's peculiar in, in this sense. It seems um, particularly able to evade the immune system. Um, there are lots of, um, there are lots of, there seems to be lots of reasons for this. Um, namely, um, uh, to start with, hepatitis C is um, what is known as an RNA virus. That is, its uh, genetic material is made of um, a, mater um, a chemical related to DNA, RNA. However, this um, RNA has a higher mutation rate. Therefore, the virus can change more quickly than a DNA organism. And this allows it to stay one step ahead. It's continually evolving to evade, um, to evade the, the human immune system. However, it also seems to be able to perform other tricks. Um, for instance, um, I, so the lab I work in under Professor Jane McKeating in Birmingham, uh, we've been looking at some of the ways that the, the virus may evade the immune system. So um, the virus can interact with B cells. Now, these are a cell of the immune system, and it seems like it, it can uh, be transmitted within these B cells. So it hides within them a, a kind of a Trojan horse model of, of transmission. And also, there we are. some of the work we're doing would suggest that the virus can transmit directly between cells, avoiding um, the immune system that's, that's in the blood, bloodstream. So although if you look at people's blood who have hepatitis C, you can find lots and lots of antibodies against hepatitis C, because the virus may not necessarily be in the same blood space as those antibodies, they can't actually neutralise it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. We can actually take, uh, we can take the blood of infected individuals and take the, the antibodies from, from uh, these individuals, and they seem to show activity uh, in the lab. We can show that we can stop a virus in the lab. However, in that patient that antibody doesn't help them in any way. It, doesn't, it may help control the virus, but it doesn't help them resolve the virus. Um, so we're particularly interested in how this is achieved. And uh, in particular, we're looking at the entry of the virus. And, and this is the stage at which neutralizing antibodies act. So um, a neutralizing antibody will stick to the surface of hepatitis C. Um, and in doing so, it inactivates the glycoproteins, which are the, the proteins that sit on the virus and interact with the receptors that are on the cell. So, I was oh. just going to say, Joe, so yeah. just very briefly. Um, so what, the point we're getting to is what we need if we want to protect people is we've got to have antibodies in the bloodstream before someone gets infected so that they can interrupt that, that process upstream of, of the virus actually getting into cells because once it does that, it's probably too late then. Yes, correct. Um, but we also have to, we're, it's important that we identify which regions of um, the virus are important for uh, the entry into the cell. So uh, a virus, uh, you, you, you will raise antibodies against lots of different parts of the virus, but some of those are decoys. Some of those are a red herring so that the, the, the immune system follows this, this particular part of the virus and it, it won't help them at all. Um, so um, we need to identify which regions of the virus are important for neutralization as well.
Thank you very much, Joe. Let's talk to Joe Grove, who is from Birmingham University, who's explaining to us there how hepatitis C virus evades our immune defences so that it can then loiter inside our cells and uh, do it with impunity. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And if you'd like to join in the conversation this week about hepatitis C, send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. OK, I've got an email here from Rob Waite, who is basically asking what causes red eyes in photographs. He says, can I first start by saying thank you very much for a great show. I have my whole family hooked. Well, I'm Rob. Good one. Uh, we can also hardly wait every week for each new episode of the podcast to be released. Uh, he wants to know why it is that red eye occurs in digital photographs and also why sometimes you've got some people who seem to be prone to it and not others. Well, red eye occurs because when you take a flash photograph the camera produces a big burst of light to illuminate the subject and that burst of light goes in through the open pupil of the subject, bounces off the back of the eye and there's a choroid plexus with a very rich blood supply inside the eyeball and that choroid plexus reflects off the light of the colour of the blood, red, back out of the front of the eye and into the camera. And this happens so quickly that there's not time for the pupil to contract before the camera takes the picture. So you see this red reflection of the interior of the person's eyeball. The way red eye reduction works is that the camera shines a brightish light at the subject's first or does a few spoof flashes first and this constricts the pupil down in the people you're taking a picture of and then it does the proper picture and that means that then there's a very small aperture in the front of the eye the pupil has got very tiny and therefore much less light gets in and it's much harder for light also to get back out again for the camera to see it and so that's how red eye reduction occurs why some people may be more prone than others perhaps the pictures that you've been taken in are not pictures involving flash photography so you don't seem to have the effect perhaps also you're not direct in line with the camera flash so therefore it didn't actually illuminate the eyeball insufficiently on its interior in order for the light to come back out at the camera um, one other possibility is that you have very very dense pigment epithelium this is a layer of melanin the same stuff that gives you a suntan inside the eye and that's what soaks up some of the extra light but i'd guess you're probably standing side on to the camera or you didn't use the flash but thanks for the email if you want to send us a question it's chris at the thanks rob now as we just heard from joe grove there hepatitis c used to be spread through blood transfusions so we sent mira sent the lingam out to find just how safe is the blood that we receive during transfusion until 1991 Blood transfusions were a common cause of hepatitis C infection, as the virus is spread by blood-to-blood contact. Famous figures such as the late Anita Roddick, founder of The Body Shop, and stuntman Evil Knievel were believed to have contracted hepatitis C in this way. But since 1991, the virus has been screened for in all blood donations in the UK. So just how do our blood services screen for not only this virus, but other infectious agents as well. And as a result, how safe is our blood? To find out, I spoke to Jean-Pierre Allen, Professor of Transfusion Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Actually, we screen essentially for viruses, and there are three main viruses we are screening for. Uh, The first one and most well-known is uh, HIV. The second is hepatitis B virus, or HBV. And the third one is hepatitis C virus, or HCV. How do you actually go about testing for these blood samples? So somebody comes in to give a donation, what happens? First, we uh, ask the uh, potential donors uh, to fill a questionnaire uh, regarding potential infections. And we also ask questions about their sexual behaviours because it has to do with the higher risk of infections and also about uh, drug abuse. And then we collect two tubes of blood, one with which we test for evidence of uh, viral infection, essentially antibodies to HIV and HCV, and for hepatitis B surface antigen. In addition to that, with the second tube, we test for the genome of the virus. In other words, a direct gene or nucleic acid of the virus. How do you actually go about looking for antibodies in somebody's blood? And and what does this tell you then about their infections? When we test for antibodies, we are looking to determine whether the individual has been in contact with the virus or not. 
we detect these antibodies by capturing the antibodies on a range of antigens from the virus itself. If the antibodies are present, they are binding to these antigens and then we detect the presence of antibodies. What then happens in the next step where you start looking at the genomes of these viruses? Every blood sample is tested for this genome, actually not individually like we do for antibodies, but in what we call pools of samples from the donors. And at the moment, this pool is 24. When we test for the genome in these pools of 24 and we find a positive reaction, then we go back to the individual donations to identify which donor is responsible for the pool being positive. Then we correlate that with the antibody being uh, found separately. Now, I imagine, though, when looking for particular genomes of a virus, it must be quite difficult because viruses evolve very rapidly. So which part of the genome do you look at? The virus itself has a tendency to uh, easily uh, modify its genome. So eventually it, it could be difficult to detect, except that we choose an area of the genome we know is what we call conserved, which means that it doesn't change at all or very little. Why is this area conserved? Because it's functionally critical. And the more critical it is functionally for the virus to replicate, the more it needs to stay the same. Now, having done all of these tests and looking into the blood, what is the risk of somebody now who receives a blood transfusion receiving infected blood? If we talk about the hepatitis C virus and HIV, the risk is calculated at about 1 in 3 to 5 million, which means that it's less likely to be infected than being hit by lightning if you stroll on a Sunday afternoon. Jean-Pierre Alain from the University of Cambridge. So we now know how we screen for viruses that we know of and know the biology of. But what about infections that we haven't met before? What about the unknowns? I asked Lorna Williamson, Medical and Research Director for NHS Blood and Transplants. Virtually every blood donation that's collected is, is separated into different parts. When people say blood transfusion, they generally mean the red blood cells, which are given to carry oxygen and treat bleeding and uh, severe anemia. But we also can take the plasma, the liquid part of blood, uh, and that is used to replace clotting factors in patients who are bleeding. And then finally, we can make blood platelets, which are little discs that circulate in the blood, and they are also important to prevent bleeding. So we try as hard as possible to remove all the parts of blood that won't benefit the patient. So we filter out the white blood cells, which in a transfusion don't offer any benefit. If the patient needs red cells, we will take away all the plasma and we can give the patients exactly what they need and no other part of the blood. And then where we can, we would alter the, the blood donation in some way to, to try and kill or remove any viruses or infectious agents. So, for example, plasma can be heat-treated or treated with chemicals, and there are new methods coming through to treat platelets with chemicals to kill viruses there and, and bacteria. How does um, treating them with heat help make them safer and remove any viruses? Well, it simply prevents the virus genome from replicating. It destroys the ability of the DNA and RNA to, to copy itself, so the virus can't multiply. So as well as heat treatments, what other precautions are taken? What we would really like would be a method of either heating or treating with chemicals the red blood transfusions, which are the biggest type of blood product that's used. And such methods are in development. The one thing we are assessing for blood transfusions are new filters to remove infectious agents called prions. They're small bits of protein that cause prion diseases like variant CJD and, and BSE in cattle. And what do you think, just lastly then, the kind of risks are of any infections or viruses that you just really aren't aware of at the moment? And how prepared do you think the system is to deal with this? So we work very closely with the Health Protection Agency 
where there are monitoring systems for infections that may come to this country from elsewhere in the world. Swine flu is a, is a good example of that. There are also systems for monitoring infections in farm animals. And we work very closely with other blood services throughout the world. With migration and international travel, infectious agents can move around the world very rapidly. So it is a case of maintaining high vigilance on an international level. So there you have it. With donor selection, virus scanning, and blood separation, as well as international disease monitoring, it's now more likely that you'll be hit by lightning than receive infected blood. And that was Mira Senthillingham talking to Lorna Williamson from the NHS Blood and Transplants uh, Service and also to Jean-Pierre Allain, Professor of Transfusion Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking this week about hepatitis and specifically hepatitis C. Kat? Yes, it's now time to find out uh, from Dr Graham Alexander, who's clinical hepatologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital, what hepatitis C actually does to the body and how we try and treat it. So, hello, Graham. Welcome to the show. Hiya. Now, um, just before we start, we've had a quick question um, from Second Life from Dally Waverider. He wants to know how many classes of hepatitis virus are there and how are they different? Well, a lot of viruses can affect the liver, but there's five that we recognise as um, important in the liver, and they're A, B, C, D and E. Rather imaginative, aren't we? Um, (laughs) The most important thing about hepatitis C is that it, it, by and large, causes an infection that lasts for a lifetime, where the other viruses don't usually. So that differentiates it quite easily. And it's an RNA virus, whereas... um, uh, B is a hepatitis is hepatitis B is a DNA virus infection, but that's a sort of semantic difference. The important thing about hepatitis C is it causes a lifelong infection in many people. So let's look at this kind of infection. So we've discovered that it goes into cells in the liver and it sort of turns them into little virus factories. What effect does that actually have on the liver? Well, I think the most important thing to stress straight away is that for most people, you don't know you've got hepatitis and it doesn't cause liver damage in the majority of people. But about 5, perhaps as high as 20% of people in some populations get into, into a situation where they develop liver damage. Uh, and you might not know you've got liver damage evolving until maybe 15 or 20 years after you've been infected with the virus. And in a way, it, it wears the, vi- the, the virus wears the liver down over a period of years, causing scarring within the liver. And once the scarring is present, then the patient is at, at risk of liver failure and, and the complications thereof. So presumably there there must be something to do with the differences between people as why some people are susceptible to uh, having liver damage from hepatitis infection and why some people aren't. Do we know anything about those kind of genetic factors? Well, we do. We, do quite, we, we know quite a lot about those genetic factors. And we know that, for example, men do much worse than women. We know that it matters how old you are when you catch the virus. So men who are over 40 when they catch the hepatitis C do very much worse than, a, say, a young girl of 20 who catches the virus. We know that people who are overweight do very much worse than the patients who are thin. And we know that people who drink heavily increase their risk of liver damage from hepatitis C very, very much so. And this, we bring in a little question here from Mira Makwana, who says, why does chronic liver disease and things like chronic drinking as well, I guess, um, lead to cirrhosis? And what's, what's the process of this scarring that's going on? The, the liver cells are, are part of a complicated organ within the liver where there's lots of different types of cells. And there's another cell sitting next to the liver cell called a stellate cell. And there are signals sent out by an injured liver cell to those stellate cells which scar the liver. So the liver ends up being scarred in exactly the same way as someone's had an operation and there's a scar on the skin. But this scar is spread finely and diffusely throughout the whole liver. Now, something I, I do know from my work at Cancer Research UK is that rates of liver cancer are going up, and we know also that liver cancer is linked to hepatitis infection. How, how does that work? What's the link there? Well, it's all through liver disease. Um, all forms of liver disease predispose patients to liver cancer in the longer term, and it's one of the things that we take great care for is to look for liver cancer at an early stage to try and pick it up. And hepatitis C is one of the major causes of liver disease in this country, so it's now one of the major causes of liver cancer. Uh, and if you have advanced liver disease, you've got a one in four risk of going on to get liver cancer subsequently. So it's a significant problem. So it strikes me is that it's fairly important to try and, and, and treat and probably even prevent hepatitis infection. Where are we currently with treatments? And we've heard already uh, about some current ideas, you know, this microRNA drug uh, for future treatments. But where are we currently with treating hepatitis? 
Well, there's been enormous progress in the last four or five years. Um, we've been we've known about interferon, um, which is what you and I produce when we get an infection, say flu, for example. We've known about that for quite a time. And on its own, it didn't really work very well. Uh, and then another drug was called ribavirin was introduced, and that on its own didn't do very well either. But when we combined these two drugs, we got striking improvements in response rates, which was unexpected but very gratifying. Um, so now we, we think that we can treat something towards about a half of the patients that, that, that come to see us. But the most important point to stress here is that the earlier we treat our patients, the better. So younger patients do much better with treatment than older patients. So it's quite important that we do see people at an early stage and we can consider treatment as early as possible in the course of the disease. And finally, very briefly, do we already have vaccines against hepatitis C? And what hope is there for preventing the transmission of it? Well, hope is all we have at the present. Uh, There are a lot of people working on on this area. And you've heard from from Joe earlier about the the virus evading the immune responses and the number of tricks that it has to do this. And the the problem we face at the present is we don't recognise a population who are immune to hepatitis C in the long term. They don't develop neutralising immunity. And if you can't develop neutralising immunity, it's very hard to see how you would target a vaccine response. So sadly, I think vaccine responses are some distance away, and we're really looking at prevention for now rather than a vaccine. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you, Graham. That's Graham Alexander from Addenbrooke's Hospital. He's with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any more questions for him or for us, if you're a Twitterer, you can tweet at Naked Scientists and you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Kat. Well, it's time now for a bit of kitchen science. Let's get experimental. Ben and Dave have been to Dave's garage to find out how you might use a bike to make a blood bank. It's a cold December evening, but Dave has dragged me out of the warm kitchen and out into his garage to show me something a little bit unusual. Dave, what are we doing this week? Well, I thought we'd do an experiment using my bicycle to show how doctors split up blood into its constituent parts. This sounds a bit strange because bicycles, of course, are for getting around. They're very good for getting around. They're environmentally friendly. They're healthy. But I don't like the thought that being on a bicycle can separate out my blood. It's not by sitting on the bicycle. It's by doing something slightly more unusual. What I've done is taken the rear bicycle wheel and taped onto it a small tube just inside the rim. Then I'm going to put inside that a little bottle of a mixture I want to separate out. I couldn't get hold of any blood, I'm afraid, so what I've got instead is salad dressing, which is a bit like blood. It's made up of different constituents of different densities. I'm going to put the bottle of salad dressing into the tube and then spin the wheel up really nicely and see what happens. So looking at your tyre, you've effectively just attached a tube around a couple of the spokes and the bottle will go in there, it'll spin, I assume, knowing how fast you cycle. It will actually spin quite quickly. Yeah, we should be able to spin that really quite fast. And as it's in top gear, if I turn the pedals around once, the rear wheel goes round once, twice, three, about four times. Sounds like you need to fix your brakes there, Dave. Yeah, not quite perfect. (laughs) But it should be good enough to demonstrate what happens when you spin a bottle of salad dressing around. I can see that you've got two bottles of salad dressing. One is plastic, the other one is glass. Surely spinning a glass bottle around is quite dangerous. I wanted to have a control bottle of salad dressing that I'm not spinning to compare it to. Okay, and so they're both exactly the same salad dressing? Yep, I made them all at once and then just poured one lot into one bottle and another lot into the other bottle. Okay, well let's test this out and see if it actually works. What do we do first? First of all, I'm going to shake them both up really, really well so as they're completely homogenised and they're all the same, a good mixture of oil and water. Okay, so we'll give them a good shake. Now, salad dressing is an emulsion. It's a mixture of oil and water. Is there anything in particular in this one that makes it taste better? I've also added a bit of mustard in there, which helps it to taste good and also acts as an emulsifier and stabilises this emulsion, this mixture of oil and water. And I like a bit of mustard on my salad as well. So are they fully shaken up now? Now, if you look at them, they look the same all the way down to the bottom. Yep, they definitely look very consistent so this is ready to go that's right so we'll put the glass one on the side so we can see what happens if we don't do anything to it and we're going to put the other one in your magic bike wheel and uh, i guess it's time to pedal so how long do we actually need to spin this around for though maybe 10 or 15 seconds Um, i'm also wearing goggles because there's a faint chance this might fall off and whilst it wouldn't hurt too much if it hit me it would hurt a lot if it hit my eyes (laughs) 
Well, that's very sensible, I think. At least it is only plastic. And now, to stop it, I assume we just hit the brake? Yep. So I'll try and time it so it lands at the bottom so it's not shaken up too much when it stops. Okay, and now it's time to get the bottle out. Now, the one that we left on the side, the glass bottle... Now, this still looks very similar to how it did when we first shook it. There is a very thin, perhaps only a millimetre deep, layer of sort of water that's separated out at the bottom. But otherwise, that's still very consistent. What do we have that's come out of your wheel, Dave? So here's one from the wheel. And as you can see, the bottom third of it is a different colour from the top two thirds. That's quite amazing, really. It's separated out a lot. There's actually a good centimetre and a half of watery layer and then all the top bit another two centimetres two three centimetres is fatty and there's even a layer down at the very bottom that you certainly can't see in the one that just sat there what's this right in the bottom of the bottle that's probably some of the solids from the mustard which have just been deposited in right in the bottom they're even denser than water and they'll sink okay so these results are pretty impressive but what's actually going on here well, if you leave a bottle of salad dressing standing around for a long time, as I'm sure you've noticed, it separates into oil and water. This is because everything in the salad dressing is getting pulled down by gravity, but the water, the vinegar, is more dense than the oil. So it gets pulled down harder, so it gets pulled to the bottom and pushes the oil out of the way upwards. So the oil floats and the water sinks. And the solid bits that we saw are even more dense than water, so they sink even further, displace the water, and that's why we get them right at the bottom. Yeah, that's right. Now, on the wheel, if you're sitting on the wheel, there's a, what's called a pseudo-force. Um, it's an easy way of thinking about it, called centrifugal force, which appears to throw everything outwards. The heavier something is, the harder it gets thrown outwards. So um, the water is going to get thrown outwards on the wheel, harder than the oil. So you get the similar effect, just gravity. But because the wheel's spinning so fast, it's equivalent to about 10 times normal gravity. So everything happens much, much faster. So this is a bit like those training rooms you see for fighter pilots where they're put in a chamber and spun round really quickly and they end up passing out at 6 or 7G. And that does the same thing as your bicycle wheel here. It puts a force on the pilot, or in our case, the bottle of salad dressing, that's much greater than that of gravity. That's right, and it's also the reason why if you spin a wet jump around your head, the water gets thrown outwards, essentially it drip dries incredibly fast and it will dry quicker. So what's that got to do with blood? Well, if you donate some blood or the doctors just want to do some tests on a sample, quite often they want to separate out the cells from the plasma from whatever else is in there. And the way they do that is by putting it in a centrifuge, which is essentially a much higher-tech version of a bicycle wheel. And so by doing exactly the same thing, spinning it round very quickly, subjecting it to forces far higher than gravity, they can separate out the components of blood according to their density. That's right. Blood cells are actually more dense than the liquid, the plasma, which they're floating around in, so they'll tend to sink. But actually, blood cells wouldn't separate out normally if you left them for a long time because they're so light, so small, they actually would get bashed around by the thermal movement of the water molecules. So they never actually settle down unless you increase the gravity in a centrifuge. In fact, in third world countries and prison of war camps, they have used bicycle-based centrifuges to separate out blood into cells and plasma. That's fascinating. I and mean, it looks so simple, but clearly... It's very effective because all you need to do is spin something round. Exactly. Well, that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week. We'll be back with more very soon. So, spinning a blood sample round or even a salad dressing sample imparts enough force to help it separate into layers of different components based on density. The most dense bits get pushed out hardest. Now, a typical lab centrifuge rotates at around 3,000 RPM to separate a blood sample, but clearly it can also work using a bicycle wheel and Dave's superb elbow grease. Thank you very much, Cap. Thank you also to Ben and Dave, who are ingenious at coming up with exciting things to do with stuff you find in a garage. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. And this is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And we're talking about hepatitis and things this week. And coming up in just a second also is our question of the week with Diana O'Carroll, who'll be finding out where seedless things come from and how they get propagated. But first, Graham, there's a question here from Sherry, which I think is sort of right up your street. She says, can hepatitis B, not C, which we were talking about earlier, but B, can that be transmitted by urine? Yeah, I think when I meet patients in clinic, I get two types of questions. One from a patient who's scared that they'll transmit hepatitis B to someone they love, and then the other from the person that they love, wondering they'll catch it from their partner. And the answer is that you can't catch hepatitis B from urine. 
these viruses are actually quite difficult to catch, both hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And hepatitis B is acquired largely by contact with blood or through sex, and hepatitis C pretty well only by contact through blood. So you can live with someone for many, many years and not catch hepatitis B or C from them because close contact in the family situation is entirely safe. And I think the other mitigation is that there is a good vaccine for hep B, isn't there? So if we identify people in a family situation who have one carrier and one person who isn't infected, we can vaccinate the uninfected person and protect them. Probably the most effective vaccine that we've ever come across. Very effective and very safe once you've been vaccinated. Thank you, Graham. Now, we've also got a question from Derek in Billericay who says, got a question about hygiene. We're told to wash our hands to avoid contaminating things with germs that we might have picked up. But uh, I was wondering, surely money could be a carrier for such germs too, as it's swapped from person to person quite frequently. Any thoughts? Yes, uh, certainly money can be a vector for infection. And in fact, the norovirus, which causes winter vomiting disease, but more recently vomiting all around the world at all times of year, it's becoming incredibly common. Norovirus, tiny particle, one thirty thousandth of, of a millimetre across each of them, about the same size as hep C actually, and those can very easily be transmitted from one surface to another and they can survive seven changes. So you touch something and someone else touches it and picks it up, they can touch a door handle and transfer it seven times, you can do that and the virus still remains infectious and you only need one of them to get infected. Yuck. Right. On to much nicer things now, and that's our question of the week. Diana, hello, Diana. Hello, yes, this week. I've been forcibly getting my five-a-day to answer this question. Hi, my name is Gary Staub, and my question is, how do farmers plant seedless fruit crops? Thanks so much. So, how do seedless fruit reproduce? I'm Stephen Tompkins, and I work at Homerton College. You need to know something about why they have no seeds. And that's because they're often triploids, that is, they've got three sets of chromosomes, and you and me have two. And when it comes to sexual cell divisions, in meiosis, they can't organise their chromosomes properly, and they fail, and therefore they have no babies. So the question that you aren't answered is, how do you get to a triploid fruit? And the answer to that is a little bit complicated. Most plants have two sets of genes, two sets of chromosomes, and they divide equally when cell divisions take place. But plants are very tolerant of having multiple sets, and that's called polyploidy. Polyploid plants can be triploid, tetraploid, pentaploid, and up the numbers go. And it doesn't often badly affect the viability of the plant. They grow, they photosynthesize, they can produce fruits. But if they have odd numbers of chromosomes, they're stuffed. They can't have any babies at all. And that happens to the triploids and the pentaploids, because you can't divide odd numbers evenly. If you want to multiply up that plant, you can do it by cloning or vegetative propagation. And that's an important thing for people setting out to grow large orchards of triploid fruit. So you can propagate plants which are gametless, so they make seedless fruit. And here's a little more on how it's done. Hello, my name is Jennifer Schultz-Nelson. I am a horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension in Macon and Pyatt counties. When humans get involved, they try to manipulate things, and they can do things like treat a plant with a chemical called colchicine, which disrupts the meiotic process. So when the plant is producing pollen grains and ovules, they will produce a gamete that has double the amount of chromosomes. So then what it is pollinated by the original plant that provides one copy of chromosomes, the result is a triploid plant. We talk about cloning being a really modern method, but actually horticulturalists have been using it for quite some time. Anytime you're taking a cutting of a plant and rooting it using different plant hormones or simply sticking it in a glass of water and watching the roots grow and then planting that plant, that's cloning, also called vegetative propagation. I actually found some information that you know, talk about polyploidy in plants, and it, it sounds like a really rare thing, but it's actually not that rare. Um, scientists think that Anywhere from 30 to 70% of angiosperms in the plant kingdom are polyploidy. And polyploidy plants tend to be larger 
and so maybe they're more competitive in nature, and so that might be some advantage for that to be selected for in nature. Triploid plants can be reproduced using cloning and vegetative propagation, as well as chemical mutagens like colchicine. But many farms will grow the fertile parent plants nearby so that more seedless offspring can be produced later. Intriguing. Also on our forum, uh, Shibs gave a great answer and pointed out that parthenocarpic fruit uh, are also involved, and this is where some plants are able to make their fruits without actually being fertilised. And on the subject of banana clones and the problems of monoculture, they were raised by a number of people on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That included Bored Chemist, who said that being a clone doesn't help, but it's also not at the root of the problem. Bum, bum. <laughs> but from frustrated plants now to a somewhat angry elephant for next week's question. Hi, it's Marie from Harrogate, and um, my question is about tasers, the tasers which are used for crowd control and stunning criminals. If you had a taser and you tasered an elephant, would you actually live to tell the tale? How strong are these things? What would happen if you tasered an elephant? How much juice would you need? Help us to answer this next question of the week by email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can go to our site and write the answer on the forum. And that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Last week we had the prospect of anaesthetising hammerhead sharks. This week, tasering elephants. Where will it all end? Thank you, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week, which you can catch up on, past editions and present, from our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. And you can also find it as a podcast in its own right on iTunes. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. I have to say a very big thank you to our guests, to Henrik Urum, to Joe Grove and Graham Alexander, and also our wonderful production team at The Naked Scientist, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll. Thank you also to Dr Cat for helping us to bring you this week's programme. Next week, we're back with a look at the flu, 2009's pandemic in retrospect. Where did this flu virus come from? How do we make vaccines against the flu? And how do flu drugs actually work? Or do they? If you have any questions about the flu, send them to us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Listener.